From the Christian Research Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff. We're on the air because truth matters and life matters more. On today's special edition of the Bible Answer Man, we pick up where we ended on our previous broadcast and present more of an episode of the Hank Unplugged podcast. Hank is talking with Dr. Andrew Galeris, author of Money and Salvation, an invitation to the good way. Let's now join Hank Hanegraaff and Dr. Andrew Galeris in their conversation. In the Old Testament, one of the intriguing things that's said is that the life is in the blood. They did sacrifices often of animals. That was an agrarian economy. We live in a capitalistic economy, and we don't have animals that we deal with. We have money. I wonder if the scriptures were written today, if scriptures might say the life is in the money instead of the life is in the blood. For me, I am constantly thinking about money. And many people I know think about money. The way that, for me, the way I can prove it is if I make an investment in a stock or in the S&P 500, I keep track of what happens with that. I mean, it, it, it almost becomes a competitor in my heart for my love for God. In fact, when Jesus wanted to draw the clearest distinction between what it means to love God and what it means to love other things, the, the sins, he, he didn't say, you know, you, you cannot serve God in lust, you cannot serve anything. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. That was the clearest competitor. And I find that's true in my own life. I'm constantly having to, you know, when I, when I see somebody who's wealthier than me, I'm jealous. I, <laughs> my wife and I had a conversation about this and how I struggle with it. And I, I think that if we pretend like it's not an issue for us, um, we're deceiving ourselves. You know, the issue of whether or not I'm a greedy person or any of us is greedy, uh, I, heard, I heard somebody talk about this, this once. Um, they said, you know, when we wake up in bed, next to somebody who's not our wife, we don't have to wonder whether we've committed adultery or not. But greed is a much more subtle thing. Um, all of us are aware and easily remember times where we've been generous in the past. You know, somebody needed something, we gave to them, and we're, we're, we're proud of that. We easily remember that. What we don't notice is that there may be somebody who God brought, a, got a process, God brought across our path, and we didn't give to them. So most of us easily come by an inflated sense of our generosity, and we're unaware of when we're not generous. Um, it's something that we, I need to constantly pay attention to in my own life. How am I doing with being as generous as God is to me? Yeah. And as you point out, John the Baptist equates repentance in this regard and giving. And you also note that Zacchaeus, his first step yeah. of repentance was a financial step. And then Jesus responded by saying, today salvation has come to this house. Yeah, that's a powerful picture you're pointing out. You know, we can understand he wanted to restore fourfold to those whom he defrauded, which is, that's in the law, but it shows his obedience to law. And then he says, I give away half of the rest to everybody else. I mean, he undoubtedly had hardly had anything left, but Jesus saw how he handled his money and knew that that was a man who was, who was saved. You've already touched on this, but I think it bears repeating, maybe elaboration, if you would. 
you make the stark observation from the scriptures that if Christ is not first in the use of our money, he's not first in our life. So if you want to know your spiritual status, carefully examine the use of your money and your possessions. Yeah, I heard a long time ago about the fact that if you want to see, if, if I want to examine my own life, um, or if somebody else wants to know how they're doing the Christian life, to look at their calendar and look at their checkbook. Those show our priorities. And I desperately wish in the church we would talk about that. Even Martin Luther has the famous line about, we all need three conversions, our, our mind, our heart, and our purse. Um, I think that the proof that our mind and our heart have been converted is how we spend our, our money. One of the things I said in the opening to this podcast today is that there's a triple braided cord in Scripture, and that is constructed of fasting, of prayer, and of almsgiving. Almsgiving is somewhat of an antiquated word. Is mercy giving perhaps a way that is more relatable in our culture? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. If you look at the derivation of the word alms, it actually comes from the Greek word elios or mercy. And I think you're exactly right, as you said in the opening. You know, we talk about in, in the church about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and we talk a lot about prayer and fasting, but we almost never have retreats about almsgiving. Or, uh, and when we talk about prayer, we, we include lots of things in prayer. It's not just going to my room and praying. We include going to liturgical services, uh, studying the Bible, uh, reading spiritual books. We include that as prayer. And when it comes to fasting, it's not just how we eat. It's, you know, avoiding uh, gossip and uh, avoiding other kinds of things. It's not just dietary restriction. Um, but because the word alms is, as you said, so antiquated as a word in the English language, um, we, we tend to think of it as just giving a few dollars to a homeless guy by the side of the road. Really, I think what Jesus and what the Gospels are talking about is all of our financial decisions, really all of them, which includes the kind of houses we live in, the cars we buy, and how generous we are. It's everything financial. And in Matthew chapter 6, which is the central chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about these three things. He talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting, and then he talks about generosity, about giving, about almsgiving. And what's interesting is that more than half the chapter talks about money. And we've lost that. And I would think it would be very important for us to recover that. Many of our churches and Orthodox organizations are kind of chronically underfunded. I think that that may be God's whisper or maybe his not so soft whisper, his increasingly loud voice, to start talking about money the way Jesus talked about money and the frequency he talked about money. I think he's trying to get our attention. One of the points that you make in the book, and it's related to what you just said, is that the church is drastically underfunded, and it is because people don't tithe. You know, we can talk about mercy giving beyond the tithe, but the tithe is lost as a discipline 
in the church. I know yeah. the emphasis in the evangelical Christian world was very, very strong for tithing. I don't know how many people actually did that based on the statistics in your book, probably not that many. But this is a precept and a principle that we need to get back to, as you point out in the book. It is a principle that is given to us not only in the Old Testament, but it's also underscored by Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3. I mean, it's about tithing your mint and your cumin, but neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And then Jesus says, you should have done the former, but you shouldn't neglect the latter either, meaning you shouldn't neglect giving the tithe. Yes. I think that tithing is kind of kindergarten for Christian discipleship. You know, we've talked about how important money is for our Christian metanoia, our repentance. Paradoxically, I think that we we talked earlier about the difference between the the needs-centric and the noose-centric approach to money. One of the tragic consequences of the church just focusing on needs-centric discussions about money is that many of our priests and bishops are very reluctant to talk about tithing, or to talk about money at all, but in particular talk about tithing, because their fear is that people will think they're just trying to raise money for the church. And the truth is they are, because that is what they're, they're not talking about, a noose-centric approach. Imagine the freedom that our bishops and priests might feel if their thinking was, I want my people to experience God's blessing on tithing. They would rush to talk about tithing frequently without any concern about a conflict of interest because there would be no conflict of interest. It would be a matter of expressing love for their people. And one thing I should also say about God's blessing on tithing, it's been a little corrupted. There's the the prosperity gospel that's taught somewhere, you know, you give God money or give a certain ministry money and God will bless you for it. I was thinking recently about when when Paul talks about, you know, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. You know, when we sow seed, when a farmer sows seed, the crop that he gets is not more seed. The crop that he gets is fruit, it's grapes, it's trees, it's wheat, it's all kind. it's transformed. And so that's what I think happens when we tithe and when we give more than a tithe. The fruit that we reap is not financial, it's spiritual. Stay right there. We'll be back soon to rejoin Hank Hanegraaff's conversation with Dr. Andrew Galeris. In his book, Money and Salvation, An Invitation to the Good Way, Andrew Galeris observes that many of today's church discussions about money focus on encouraging people to give for the sake of facilitating important ministry. It is ministry-centric. But when the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthians to give to help the poor in Jerusalem, he made it clear that this was an opportunity that would be of great spiritual value to those who gave. Paul's emphasis is soul-centric giving. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. To receive your copy of Money and Salvation, an invitation to the good way, call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the Christian Research Institute's mind-shaping, life-changing outreaches. 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. 
That's equip.org. The Christian Research Journal is CRI's award-winning magazine, combining eye-catching design with well-researched articles to equip believers in doctrine, defense, and discernment. The Christian Research Journal's primary commitment is to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In keeping with this commitment, the journal's mission is both evangelistic and pastoral, furthering the proclamation and defense of the historic gospel of Jesus Christ and helping his followers distinguish between essential Christian doctrine and doctrine that is peripheral, aberrant, or heretical. In an age of subjectivism and moral relativism, may Christians ground their faith and values in the objective, reliable testimony of Holy Scripture. Start your subscription to the Christian Research Journal today. Call 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. That's equip.org. Bertrand Russell famously said, most people would rather die than think, and many of them do. Not so with CRI support team members. Support team members are not only serious thinkers, but their membership in CRI's support team helps to equip hundreds of thousands of fellow believers around the globe each and every month. Are you not a member? Then you're missing out. Not only do support team members form the backbone of Christian Research Institute's outreaches, but they enjoy their selection of resources from our Equipping Essentials Library and receive a complimentary subscription to CRI's award-winning Christian Research Journal, just two of the benefits of membership. To discover how you can make a difference 24-7 in equipping believers at home and abroad to stand for life and truth, check out the benefits of membership at equip.org. Breaking the code of the book of Revelation has become an international obsession. The result has been rampant misreading of scripture, bad theology, and even bad politics and foreign policy. In the Apocalypse Code, find out what the Bible really says about the end times and why it matters today. Hank Hanegraaff argues that the key to understanding the last book of the Bible is the other 65 books of the Bible, not current events or recent history. The Apocalypse Code offers sane answers to some very controversial questions such as, what does it mean to take the book of Revelation literally? Who are the Antichrist and the Great Whore of Babylon? And what is the real meaning of 666? Order The Apocalypse Code by Hank Hanegraaff today. Available in soft cover, MP3 CD, or MP3 download from equip.org. Or call 888-7000-CRI. Here again are Hank Hanegraaff and his guest, Dr. Andrew Galeris, as they continue their conversation. You know, when a farmer sows seed, the crop that he gets is not more seed. The crop that he gets is fruit. It's transformed. And so that's what I think happens when we tithe and when we give more than a tithe. The fruit that we reap is not financial. It's spiritual. Beyond that, it's even joy. One of the things that I heard somebody say a long time ago with regard to the giving is when we're generous with God with our money, God is generous with us with the things that money can't buy. And it's the things that money can't buy 
that are really the most valuable things in life. It's good relationships with our children, it's joy in our hearts, it's spiritual power in our prayer. That's the fruit of tithing, and that's why it's such a tragedy that many of our priests are so concerned about offending people by talking about tithing. There's nothing to be offended about. It's a blessing to talk to people about tithing. You just mentioned prosperity preachers. I did a foreword for a book. It's a number of sermons by St. John Chrysostom. It's titled On Wealth and Poverty. It's published by St. Vlad's Press. Mm-hmm. And in that book, I talk about the contrast between John Chrysostom and his view on money and that of the prosperity preachers. In fact, John Chrysostom as a saint says that the rich exist for the sake of the poor, the poor exist for the salvation of the rich, something I would love you to expand on in a moment. But at any rate, the contrast between the sermons of contemporary prosperity preachers and that of John Chrysostom couldn't be starker for the modern prosperity peddler. Christ is a mere means to our ends. And so multitudes are called to the table of the master, not for the love of the master, but for what is on the table of the master. So you have the glory of the cross transposed to the glory of consumerism. It's the commodification of the divine. It's a, what I called a fresh new face of baptized humanistic psychology. It's the transformation through the recital of mantras not the renewing of minds. Now, in St. John Chrysostom's sermons, he's renewing the mind. He's pointing us to eternal verities. And again, that one moniker, that one phrase is so poignant and profound. It's something that you point to in your book. The rich exist for the sake of the poor. The poor exist for the salvation of the rich. Well, let me ask you a question, Hank. You know the the the... The, the way things are, the lay of the land in in the church. What kind of things do you think we should be doing to restore that kind of way of thinking that Chrysostom talked about and a lot of other church fathers talked about? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Read your book and read this other book on wealth and poverty. They're transformational. I mean, I think what's so powerful about your book is that when you get done reading it, and it doesn't take a long time to read, it's not a ponderous book, there are so many nuggets in this book that ultimately point you back to a proper understanding of the Scriptures. And that's what's beautiful, I think, in your book in particular, because you do not discount holy tradition. You don't see it as an independent instance or a complementary source of faith. It's a right understanding of Scripture. And that's what you get with respect to finances. So often, as I was just mentioning, in the contemporary world, you have a perversion of finances, a give-to-get scheme, and you're pointing out, no, that's not the emphasis of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is concerned about your transformation, so as you give, you're transformed. Yeah, I was actually watching one of your own YouTube videos on theosis a while ago, and uh, you know, it's something that we talk about in the church, but I think I think you're right. Our, our, our hearts are so closely attached to our money that um, it's, 
It's a, uh, one of the things that I've thought about often is that tithing, for example, is not an obligation. It's a gift that God has given us to be able to grow in the theosis that you talk. By the way, I recommend that video. I'm sure if you, if you Google Hank Hanegraaff and theosis, you'll come across that, um, that video. Um, but oh, it's interesting to think about what salvation is, because I think theosis, as you were talking about, is probably much closer to God's desire for us in terms of salvation than we realize. I, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that the word salvation or sozo has a lot more to do with spirit, with health, with physical health, health in all kinds of different ways. And what we often don't realize is how our money helps with that. And one of the things that I mention in the book is that, you know, Paul says about Jesus, Behold, while we were still sinners, Christ, Christ died, died for us. us. Yes. And so, you know, there's nothing more we can do. Our giving doesn't make God love us more. He already loves us as much as he possibly could. But what generosity does is it opens up our hearts to be able to experience that love because we become more like God. Isaac the Syrian and Vladimir Lossky and actually Maximus the Confessor all say that at the, at the end of history, what happens is that everything gets united to God. But our experience of that love of God will depend on how generous and how loving we've been, how merciful we've been in our lives. Um, and, and thinking about that, the analogy I came up with was, you know, of people going to a, a concert. And if it's a classical concert, some people who love classical music will love the concert, but other people who don't like classical music will, will find it painful or a sporting event. Some people would love watching a football game and other people couldn't care less. Um, so it's, but it's the same event happening, but we're experiencing it differently. So at the end of time, when God pours his love out, one of the things that Lossky and St. Silouan the Athenite talk about is the fact that the love of God goes everywhere. But what hell is, is when we experience that love of God, and it's painful for us because we haven't done that in ourselves. We haven't grown our own hearts in terms of love and mercy and generosity. And not just towards those that are in need, but also towards God. One yes. of the things that I thought you pointed out brilliantly in this book is the story of Mary, who pours out this expensive spikenard, this oil, on the feet of Jesus Christ. And she does so because she recognizes the worth of Jesus Christ. Yes. So yes. this is a waste to someone that doesn't recognize the worth of Jesus Christ, but if you recognize who Christ is, the one who spoke in the universe leapt into existence, then you no longer consider this a waste. It's a good investment. It's the best investment that could possibly be made because, and what's interesting in that passage, you know, in one of the gospel presentations, it says Judas objected to this waste, and the other one it says that all the disciples objected to it because, you know, the, it, the, the, the spikenard could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus defends her and says, no, what she's doing is something good. And as you said, it transformed her own heart. And transforming her heart was more valuable to Jesus. Jesus said, the poor you're going to have with you always. 
but you don't always have me. And I think that's why it's so important what you're pointing out is what, what Mary did, she changed her own heart. It's, it's an interesting paradox that when we give, we become more like God, and we receive more back than we ever give. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And another insight that I got from your book is this insight with respect to whole burnt offerings. In fact, you have a chapter by that title. In the Old Testament, the burnt offering was consumed. You have a parallel for that in the present. Yeah, for many years, I would see this thing about whole burnt offerings in the Old Testament pass by it. You know, there's a lot of, there's wave offerings and sin offerings. There's all kinds of offerings mentioned in the Old Testament. It turns out whole burnt offerings or burnt offerings are mentioned like over 300 times. I searched for it. And then and the word tithe is mentioned about 50 or 60 times. So it's mentioned far more often. But the reason whole burnt offerings is so important is because of the, the, the example par excellence in the Old Testament of a whole burnt offering was uh, Isaac and Abraham going up to Mount Moriah. And we all remember that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. But what we sometimes miss is that this was to make a whole burnt offering. Isaac was carrying wood on his back, and Abraham was walking next to him with a torch. Um, and Isaac looks at Abraham and says, Father, you know, here's the wood for the whole burnt offering, and there's the fire for the whole burnt offering, but where's the lamb for the whole burnt offering? He gets it, and Abraham kind of pacifies him a little bit. But that was intended to be a whole burnt offering. And the reason that's important is because that's the clearest Old Testament type of a whole burnt offering. That's what Jesus did in the cross. In a sense, Jesus dying in the cross is God's whole burnt offering in our behalf. We'll have to stop here for today's special edition of the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Join us again next time when we'll continue Hank Hanegraaff's conversation with Dr. Andrew Galeris. Our firm commitment here at the Christian Research Institute is to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints and equip believers to become true disciples of Jesus Christ. In appreciation for your vital gift to the ongoing work of the Christian Research Institute, Hank would like to send you a copy of Money and Salvation, an invitation to The Good Way by Andrew Galeris. Just call a resource consultant at 888-7000-CRI, 888-7000-CRI, or visit our website at equip.org. That's equip.org. You can also write CRI at Post Office Box 8500, Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. The Bible Answer Man broadcast is funded by listeners like you. We're on the air because truth matters, life matters more. The Christian Research Journal is CRI's award-winning magazine, combining eye-catching design with well-researched articles to equip believers in doctrine, defense, and discernment. The Christian Research Journal's primary commitment is to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In keeping with this commitment, the journal's mission is both evangelistic and pastoral, furthering the proclamation and defense of the historic gospel of Jesus Christ and helping his followers distinguish between essential Christian doctrine and doctrine that is peripheral, aberrant, or heretical. In an age of subjectivism and moral relativism, may Christians ground their faith and values in the objective, reliable testimony of Holy Scripture 
Start your subscription to the Christian Research Journal today. Call 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. That's equip.org.